Welcome to Herrick Does That, a podcast on current legal topics, relevant industry and legal trends, and significant developments in the law, brought to you by the attorneys of Herrick Feinstein. I'm Erwin Kishner, Herrick's executive chairman, and I want to thank you for joining us. Hello, this is Mitch Corby. I'm uh, head of uh, Herrick Feinstein Zoning and Land Use Group. Um, very happy to be speaking to you all uh, today, and I hope everyone uh, is well. Today, I, I have the great pleasure of uh, having a conversation with uh, my friend and colleague, Ray Levin. Uh, Ray, who is often known as Mr. Brooklyn, uh, joined our team here uh, a couple of years ago, and it's been a great run and, and looking forward to many, many more. Um, so I'd like to just jump right in with Ray. Ray uh, um, has been an urban planner and a lawyer for many years, and uh, I think he's a little older than the current zoning resolution, which dates, of course, from 1961, um, but more importantly, has spent uh, many, many years in Brooklyn. And that's our, our key topic today is, is a dialogue and a discussion about uh, Brooklyn's past, its present, and its trajectory. Um, Brooklyn, as I think uh, all of you know who are listening in, is a vibrant and thriving borough, the largest borough in terms of population, and it will this year, I'm told, pass Chicago in terms of population. It's a place that's a collection of neighborhoods. It seems to have a center, unlike Queens, and it's a place that has evolved, not devolved, over the years. And um, this change has been mostly positive, but some would say it, it uh, has its challenges too. But let's just jump right in, Ray. What are your earliest memories of Brooklyn? Um, and, and what are your uh, what, what are your thoughts about those memories and how they might resonate today? Well, I do remember riding on the trolleys, so um, that takes me back. But um, in terms of, of the 61 zoning resolution, um, I, uh, I went to work at city planning in 1970, so it wasn't too, uh, too long after that. Um, and at that time, places like Brooklyn Heights were uh, full of roomy houses, uh, not the multi-million dollar apartments that are there now. So it was, uh, it was different. And the planning in the city, the planning in Brooklyn was getting, uh, getting started. They had just started local borough offices, uh, which is where I ended up, uh, finding a, a job out of, uh, out of college. And it was, they, they were located in downtown Brooklyn and they were, the, the, it was Mayor John Lindsay who, who was uh, in office at that time uh, and had a fellow named Donald Elliott who ran city planning. Um, and they sort of set up these offices and they divided uh, the borough into uh, different areas and assigned different planners to them. And I ended up uh, being assigned to um, Sheepshead Bay, Canarsie and Southern Brooklyn, uh, which at the time was... Uh, Bucolic. Uh, Sheepshead Bay had the fishing fleet at the time. Uh, the strip along Emmons Avenue and Sheepshead Bay had some, uh, uh, some businesses, most famously London, uh, Lundy's, uh, uh, seafood house, a huge, huge place and, uh, Pip's Comedy Club where guys like Woody Allen started. But Mr. Lundy, who owned the, uh, the, the restaurant, uh, owned most of the property down, down there. And that was one of the first projects that I got involved in was with city planning to work on a special district uh, for that um, uh, in Sheepshead Bay, which uh, was a, a tremendous learning experience 
and turned out to be totally useless. But uh, so it goes. No, and I understand that special district uh, that governs development in Sheepshead Bay exists to this day, uh, notwithstanding the fact that the fishing fleet is probably diminished quite a bit. So, so back at this time period, uh, we had the Board of Estimate, which for many of our listeners seems like a bunch of dinosaurs, but and perhaps antiquated and and you know ill-suited to to the world that that, that existed then and certainly today. On the other hand, there are some folks who are nostalgic about the Board of Estimate. Um, so tell us a little bit about that, because the Board of Estimate, uh, you know, governed the city when, when you were first working. And what were your experiences like and, uh, and all? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting looking back at that time. Um, there was no open meetings law. There was a lot more um, back room, as they say, discussions of things uh, at the Board of Estimate and also at city, city planning back then. The Board of Estimate, well, I get the structure of government, the city planning and the, and the Board of Estimate work hand in hand on certain aspects which, which people are talking about bringing back today. At that time, city planning had a role in preparing the city's capital budget. So therefore, you had planning and then a role in, in at least laying out what could be implemented. Um, and there was a master plan done at that time, uh, which was not forward-looking, more it was looking and, and documenting what, what the city had on the books at that moment. Um, and the Board of Estimate on the, was the proving uh, authority for land use items and also had a role in the budget with, uh, with the city council. So the Board of Estimate had uh, the five borough presidents, the controller, the mayor, and the head of the city council, um, and uh, and the three citywide officials had two votes, and the borough presidents had one. But but it, it the borough president had a broader view of development. I mean, today the city council uh, member uh, is looking at uh, a small area. He he or she gets elected from that small area. Borough president. Uh, could be a little more, uh, have a little, little broader view. Um, so when it came to, you know, facilities that an area might not like, uh, a borough president would have, was elected from the whole borough. So if one part of it was upset with him, so be it. Um, and council people now, uh, everybody's concerned about their own turf and it's hard to, uh, to get that broader view across. Right. Um, interesting. So as you, as you described the vote of estimate, it sounds like a, a relatively efficient way of getting things done where folks were in a, in a room and folks in power uh, who represented uh, large segments of the population and then these at-large people were able to get things done in a way that uh, involved, sounds like, collaboration and dialogue and, and all the rest. Um, so why was it disbanded? And, and do you think maybe it, um, there are elements to it uh, <laughs> that would be better uh, for today than what we have today? Well, you know, it was disbanded because the borough president of Staten Island had one vote and the borough president of Brooklyn had one vote. And that was a disparity. Uh, and uh, a lawsuit was brought saying that it violated one person, one vote. And that ultimately was successful in forcing the disbandment of, uh, of the Board of Estimate. Um, and, and so now the council people are elected, one person, one vote. 
and there is no overarching legislative body that has that it, it, that has um, uh, members who have a broader view than a local uh, councilmanic district. So if you if you see what's going on in, in the city uh, now, where there's a lot of discussion of of uh, council members being able to control um, matters that come to their district. I mean, there are some people who felt that uh, Industry City uh, should have been approved, that there were a lot of good things about it. The council person was opposed to it. Uh, it didn't get approved. Uh, if there, if that had happened at the Board of Estimate, there may have been a different result um, because the uh, there was a broader perspective. Um, and, and having worked uh, at one point in my career for the borough president of Brooklyn, I, uh, I look back fondly on those days. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. And we certainly did have a view of what was best for the borough. We were always fighting with Manhattan, but we, we always had, had that view and, uh, and sometimes uh, and had to make decisions uh, that affected certain neighborhoods in a way that the, that the, the residents weren't happy with. Right. Uh, that's, that's fascinating. So, so shifting back to more specifically uh, Brooklyn and its neighborhoods. Um, so you've witnessed so many changes. You spoke a minute ago about Brooklyn Heights uh, and how it has evolved. Uh, back when you were working for the city, there was no Dumbo. And uh, Williamsburg Greenpoint was a collection of vacant warehouses or, or in some cases, busy warehouses, maybe some artists. And some of the other communities that we, we think of today as vibrant, uh, whether it's Bushwick or Bed-Stuy, were quite different then. What was the role uh, of, of your work and, and, and city planning in having these neighborhoods change? Or, or did they just change because they change? Well, well, I, I think that they, they changed organically. I guess that's what people say these days. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, People saw uh, vacant warehouses, and and uh, when I when I started in, in the 1970s in city planning, there were some artists living in Dumbo in the Dumbo area. It wasn't called Dumbo at the time, and uh, the city did a survey of them in order to enact the law to give them some protections because they were in uh, areas that didn't allow residents. Um, and at that time, they made a movie uh, called Scent of a Woman. Uh, where there's a scene of, of a, a uh, I think a blind, uh, De Niro, one of those guys, uh, driving, uh, down streets. And it was in Dumbo because there were no, there's no traffic there. You could drive and, and be blind at the same time. So, uh, so that's the, that's sort of the way Dumbo was at that point. Um, uh, some of the warehouses were owned by the Helmsley Group, who you may, you may know. Um, and at, one point in that in their lifetime, the warehouses were sold, and uh, and a guy named uh, David Valentis bought them, and and was able to secure uh, a state contract to make them into office space, and it, it just it proceeded from there in Dumbo, uh, Williamsburg, Greenpoint. Uh, sort of similarly, you had all of these uh, vacant buildings because manufacturing had uh, headed south or. Uh, uh, first to the southern United States and then eventually to China and other places. Um, and here you had these beautiful, uh, old buildings on the waterfront. And so people saw opportunities. The city, in its wisdom, back 
in LaGuardia days, uh, if you look around the city, you see that they, the waterfront properties were built with public housing. Um, if you look at the Lower East Side, uh, you look at some other places in the city, because uh, that was the land that was available at that point when the slaughterhouses left uh, and Rockefeller Center was built and things like that. So, so that evolution keeps going and it's hard to tell where it's going to go. The city, when Chuck Schumer was, uh, was a lowly uh, congressman, talked about, you know, we, we, we want to make uh, change the zoning in downtown Brooklyn to, to support offices and to, and to make it really make it the second hub of the city. And, uh, there was legislation and it happened. And for the next 15 years, the only thing that got built was residential. Um, so you, it's hard, it's hard to predict what's going to happen and zoning, um, may not be the best predictor or the, or the best, uh, uh, molder of the future. On the other hand, it would be nice if, if zoning was able to react more quickly when they saw trends and to, to help control or mold or direct what happens and the way our, uh, the way the city is set up now with environmental reviews and ULERP and all that stuff. Now, since we started talking about when I started, you know, no ULERP, right. no environmental review, no, you know, it, it was, it was a, a different world. I'm not saying that that world produced great results or better results than today, but it, it certainly, I think, was more nimble. This is a, a wonderful dialogue and it, it springs to mind so many, so many questions. And, uh, it, so, one of your points is that a lot of Brooklyn's development and evolution um, occurred um, having nothing to do with government action, but as you say, occurred organically. So many people today, either because they're pointing fingers or they want to make changes, um, will point to the zoning resolution as, as the evil thing that creates this or destroys that or enables this. Um, as you point out, I, I gather it is it is not necessarily the force that some think, and it could be certainly improved maybe to become something that would, as you say, uh, create and react. Um, along these lines, um, you know, back as, as late as the early 90s, Brooklyn had a pre-war skyline almost, right, except for maybe Metrotech. And then since the early 90s, um, what, what's happened? Why, why? It seems now you look at downtown Brooklyn and it's, it's got uh, a, a, its first super tall, among other things. Well, there are folks who say the Manhattanization of Brooklyn and they're again it, you know, part of, part of that was, was a downtown Brooklyn rezoning, uh, which, uh, was, as I said, was to spur commercial development and, and provide more density for that. And it ended up being uh, overtaken by residential plus just the market pre pandemic market. You know, Brooklyn, uh, was a place to be. People saw it as, as where young people would, would go. Um, there was only so much uh, housing in Williamsburg and Greenpoint. They were all small buildings basically. And downtown Brooklyn was a, was sits over, uh, the most incredible transportation system in, in the city, if not the region, uh, you know, from every subway line and the Long Island Railroad. And, uh, so, uh, so it was a place, um, that the zoning allowed that size building, uh, but the market is what Got them built, so that's how those the, the market and the, and the zoning interact. You know, would would there have been all that development if if the buildings were half as tall? Probably. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. 
let's talk a little bit about uh, Brooklyn's character and its people. So we now, among, among a lot of other things to talk about in this regard, we have a, our own sports team uh, in Brooklyn, the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, Brooklyn used to have the Dodgers, right, and, and all, and, and then they left the city. And then for a long time, Brooklyn was, out, was without any major league sport. Is that important to the city? And then, I should say, to Brooklyn? And what about the other cultural attributes that Brooklyn has that maybe other boroughs don't enjoy? Well, I don't know. I, I mean, I was, I went to the Eggers Field and the Dodgers, um, and they were a true local team. Uh, the world of sports has changed just like everything else. So you signed on with the Dodgers and you played for them forever. There was no free agency. Yeah. Um, Gil Hodges lived on Bedford Avenue. You could, you know, go walk by his house. Uh, you know, it was a different, uh, different world. If you, uh, if you talk to my wife, she thinks that all, all sports are boys things and, uh, and, 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 and doesn't see why, why government ends up giving money to build arenas and things. I don't, I think the identity of Brooklyn has, grown up uh, as being a, a cool place um, because of uh, restaurants, because of the sense of the people who are living there, the creativity of the people who are living there. I mean, there are a tremendous number of, of writers. Almost every time I read a book review, the person is living in Brooklyn, no matter where they were born. And this, you know, the sports teams, certainly when I was a kid, you know, the Dodgers, the Yankees, whatever had, you know, they were passionate uh, alliances amongst the people of Brooklyn versus uh, you know, the Giants were in the Bronx. And, you know, today I don't feel that as much. You know, the Islanders came and then they and then they went. I'm not sure it's that big an engine of, of the economy. Uh, sports um, tends to not be uh, from the studies that I've read, but it, it is a sense of identity and probably more, more of concern to politicians and other people, you know, if Tampa Bay didn't have a team and it got a team, boy, that's not terrific. But, uh, you know, I don't know whether it, it changes anyone's perception of Tampa Bay. It's interesting, your, your commentary about the character of the population and what makes it cool and hip. I mean, Brooklyn is now ubiquitous, you know, there are potato chips named after Brooklyn. And you can go to Belgium and hear people talk uh, about Brooklyn. Is there something about the physical nature of the place, in addition to what you pointed out about its people? Is there something about its waterfront, the, the civic center? I mean, it seems to have a, a sense of place that Queens doesn't have. As wonderful as Queens is, and we can't slam another borough. Uh, after all, you know, 120 languages are spoken in Queens, and that's a wonderful thing. But um, there's something about Brooklyn. I, I think... It always was, you know, it always was compared to Manhattan. I mean, when I worked for the Brooklyn Borough President, um, we used to crash meetings at the at the real estate board when they would and and go there and and embarrass them by by saying, "How come you're you're only talking about Manhattan?" Here? Um, and I think that that uh, underdog, the Dodgers, um, were always good, but won one World World Series when they were in Brooklyn, not not. 20 of them, like the guys in the, in the Bronx. Uh, so, uh, there was that underdog feeling. And then there was the sense at some point that Manhattan was, um, you know, in the seventies, there was a crime and you, you were, uh, you were a little less focused on the, on the culture of Manhattan and more focused on your own neighborhood and community. And Brooklyn had community, whereas, 
Manhattan, you didn't perceive it the same way. And certainly Queens had community, but Brooklyn was closer. Brooklyn always had that, that, that stepchild at some point relationship. Um, and as we were breaking out of that, uh, I think that's how it, uh, how it sort of got, got perceived as being a, a place to, uh, to be. And now there are people who are, who are concerned that some of the, you know, neighborhoods are losing their character because right. of new development and new people moving in rather than seeing the new people moving in as being, uh, absorbed into the community. They, they see a lot of the new development being, uh, for people who were there for a year or two and then gone. So it's, that's it's different. It becomes more transient or, or the Manhattanization of Brooklyn. Yeah, that, that's yeah. that. So there was a, there was that period, I guess, from the nineties or so, eighties, nineties till fairly recently. Right. But, you know, Brooklyn always was, always had in neighborhoods. I mean, the, the names of the parts of Brooklyn, you know, whether it's Flatbush or Benson or whatever, are go back to the Dutch when they came here in, in the 1600s. Let's just talk for a minute before we uh, begin to wrap up about the role of the borough president. Uh, it's sort of ceremonial now, right, because of the Board of Estimate having been disbanded and the borough presidents don't have a lot of responsibility other than appointing somebody in the planning commission. Um, uh, however, Marty Markowitz, uh, who was borough president a few years ago, uh, you know, was the bully pulpit, right, and he everybody knew Marty. Uh, whereas the current borough president is going to be our mayor in all, in all likelihood, uh, kind of had a different approach than, than Marty. What, what do you what do you say about the role today of the borough president? It's a it's a difficult role. When uh, when I worked for Howard Golden and uh, and he was borough president of Brooklyn, uh, you know, being on the board of estimate uh, gave you uh, a bit of power. You voted on the budget, uh, even though you only had one vote, you still had one vote, and uh, and so the there was less. Certainly when, when I was there, there was, there was a, there wasn't a, a bully public. You, you didn't reach out to have a million events where you could be seen and talk, right? You, you, you were in a, you, you, you would be seen and, and, and what you did was evident from the votes and what happened. Whereas the borough president, borough presidents today, it seems to me, spend a lot of, a lot of time Getting their points across, but, uh, and therefore they have to, you know, be, be have that bully pulp, be, be more out and, and talking. Obviously, Marty Markowitz was a, was a promoter. He was a, he, you know, he was the PT Barnum of, of our presidents. Uh, Eric has taken his very job very seriously. Uh, when you look at his reports on land use matters, uh, some borough presidents, it would be checking off a box that say approved, not approved with three sentences. Eric always did 12, 15 pages, uh, with a lot of, uh, policy pronouncements, uh, but they were recommendations. And so, you know, that's the, that's the difference. He didn't have, doesn't have a role at, uh, you know, in, in approving things. Right. So, uh, so it's a, it's a, it certainly is a, uh, different role. People have argued that uh, they should get rid of the borough presidents. They're mm-hmm. not worth the money. Right. Um, he does, uh, or she, uh, uh, you know, appoint people to the community boards, right. which is, uh, uh, and they play an important role, but it's it's not not the way it was. Mm-hmm. Not the way it was. Right. So in our, our remaining minute or two or three, 
No, this should be longer. Uh, it, it should be because it's it, no, it, 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 indeed it should be, and, and this is the sort of thing that uh, we ought to be talking. I about. I want to be welcome back. We ought to be talking about more, talk, talking about more in the city. In fact, I was speaking today about the fact that we don't seem to have a a citywide publication that, that really devotes itself to New York. I mean, uh, uh, the, the New York Post kind of pretends to do that, if I may say that. And the, the Times is too busy doing all the things the New York Times does. But but anyway, um, are you optimistic, Ray, about the Brooklyn's future? And, and uh, are, are, we, uh, are we poised for continuing this uh, evolution and improvements, or, or are we going to be in a period of stagnation for a little while? Well, you know, I'm... I'm I'm an optimistic sort of person, so I'm optimistic. Uh, there are, you know, the, the, the social uh, unrest that we've seen in, in recent years. Uh, you know, Brooklyn's not immune from that. Uh, gentrification uh, is uh, is of concern uh, to a lot of folks. They think that uh, development pushes people out of their neighborhoods. Um, whether that's true or not, it certainly is a perception. Um, and how how uh, those things are dealt with uh, are going to you know set the set the future. So how do we how do we provide housing? How do we deal with uh, inequality? How do we do all those things? Um, whether it's Brooklyn, Manhattan, Queens, uh, Dubuque, uh, uh, Wells Fargo, you know Fargo or something, uh, you know how that how those things get dealt with on a, a local and and to some extent national level. Will will say what we're going to be. Uh, you know, we're not even talking about climate change. So you know, uh, I, I'm optimistic, but then again, uh, you know, I'm 74. So um, you know, young young pups like you will deal with all this stuff. <laughs> I, I, I find it shocking that you're 74. Uh, so do I. So does so, so my wife. So does your wife. Well, well, thank you, Ray. I, I'll let me just say to our uh, listeners that. I, it's been a pleasure to have to work with you at Herrick, and, and I've learned a lot, and, and I think I, I have a lot more to learn from you. So I, I appreciate that very much, and others at my firm uh, here at Herrick do as well. And as we, God willing, continue to grow and move out of this public health crisis and spend more time together, uh, which I hope to do, uh, I think we can all uh, learn from each other too. Um, so, so thank you all, and anxious to hear any comments that you may have. But it's a pleasure, and, and please stay tuned to our, uh, our events. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you, Ray. You. Thank you very much for joining us for Herrick's podcast, Herrick Does That. To learn more about our firm and to listen to additional recordings, please visit us at www.herrick.com.